Report is officially back in business after four months of summer hiatus. The break was great, but now the Arts Report is back, and I've got no doubt the fall will be even better. On today's show, we catch you up on all things Fringe. As some of you longtime listeners know, the Arts Report features a special podcast series called This Fringy Life, each year in support of the Fringe Festival. This year is no different, and on today's show, we feature two This Fringy Life interviews held by myself, Christine Kim. So, thank you, new and old listeners, for joining me today on The Arts Report first, Back From Break broadcast. You are listening to The Arts Report on CITR Radio 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam Territory in Vancouver. Yeah, what's up, man? Hey, I'm uh, I'm on the guest list. Yeah. Who is headlining here tonight? Yeah, I'm on their list. I'm on their list. Oh, well, I should be on there, so... Looking for that cool band buzz? Jeez, um, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Shindig is CITR's annual Battle of the Bands. Every year, Vancouver bands compete for prizes including studio time, festival spots, media coverage, promotions, and more. We are now accepting submissions. Please send your demo of original material of at least three songs to shindig.submissions at gmail.com. Contact info must include your email and phone numbers. All genres welcome. Join a 33-year-old legacy of great Vancouver music. For more info, find the CITR Shindig page on Facebook. Salam. Rusetun bekhair. My name is Sahan, the president of UBC Persian Club. And this is Yasaman, the VP admin. UBC Persian Club is a non-profit student organization with the goal of empowering the Iranian community at UBC by acting as a social hub for Iranian students, bringing together diverse members of the community who have a common interest in Iranian culture and nurturing and representing the Iranian community in Vancouver. They have monthly member-exclusive events, Pelon, the screen documentary movies and short films by Iranian directors with English subtitles, music gatherings, a series of casual music gatherings at which students can play different types of instruments, and sports events and game nights. Our regular events are member exclusive and you will receive 25% discount on our annual events. You can visit us at ubcpc.com or email us through info at ubcpc.com or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. This Fringy Life on CITR 101.9 FM. This is a special broadcast from the Arts Report. Each episode, we bring you stories from the Fringe in advance of Fringe Festival. The Vancouver Fringe Festival runs this September from the 8th to the 18th. For more information about the Unjuried Fringe Fest, check out VancouverFringe.com. And for more information about the Arts Report, visit citr.ca. Hello and welcome to This Fringy Life. I'm Christine Kim and on this episode we continue the theme of dark comedy with fringe god TJ Daw and charming actress slash playwright Megan Phillips. Megan Phillips has written a one-woman performance called Not Enough 
directed by T.J. Daw, and it is about the hilarious and heartwarming story of when Megan embarked on a 10-day silent meditation, only to find the exact opposite of a relaxing and peaceful experience. Both T.J. and Megan give a new spin on what dark comedy means, as well as just how impactful of a tool this genre of comedy can be for talking about serious issues like anxiety. We also spend a fair bit of time talking about TJ and the quote-unquote full house he's bringing this year to the Fringe. So, sit back, relax, and listen to another episode of This Fringy Life. I'll probably talk too much. I'm just <laughs> putting that out there. <laughs> um, i taciturn. If you ask me a question, I'll probably answer with one word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not, TJ, because I've actually spoken to quite a few people at the Fringe who have been working with you and who accredit um, your directing, dramaturging expertise quite frequently. So I'm very excited to talk to both of you, actually. Um, so why don't we start off with introductions. Please say your name and your involvement with Not Enough. I am Megan Phillips, and I am the writer and performer in Not Enough. And I'm T.J. Daw, and I'm the director and dramaturg of Not Enough. And if anybody's not familiar with the term dram- dramaturg, it's kind of a script editor for a theater. Megan, do you want to give an overview about the premise of Not Enough and what Not Enough is about? Absolutely. So Not Enough is a theater show that I like to say is a nice romp through the bowels of my mind <laughs> as I underwent, it's autobiographical, about how I underwent a 10-day Vipassana silent meditation retreat, which is a retreat where uh, it's not only silent, but you can't make eye contact, you can't talk, you can't communicate, you can't gesture, you can't journal, basically eliminates all distractions. Over the course of this 10-day uh, retreat, I discovered to my own surprise that I have crippling anxiety and have had for my entire life. So this show is uh, a fun and delightful finding of uh, finding out of that as the audience comes with me, uh, and then we make it through a breakthrough onto the other side. Hmm. Do you want to elaborate a little bit about crippling anxiety? What do you mean by crippling anxiety? Well, uh, essentially, I mean that inner critic or voice in your head that with TJ's help, we have personified into a character that I dialogue with over the course of the show. And I also use a loop pedal, you know, the instrument, like a loop pedal, to simulate the actual thoughts and effects of somebody undergoing anxiety from mild anxiety and dulling in the background to a full-blown anxiety panic attack. That's a really interesting idea, being able to use a loop pedal to personify that. TJ, were you there from the very beginning writing up the script, or did she come with you uh, having a script prepared? What was that process like um, in terms of when you got involved, TJ? Megan approached me in November, and we had a conversation about the experience that she'd had, which was last July, not the past July, but the one before, at the Meditation Center in Merritt, B.C., And she told me the story of what happened and told me that she wanted to turn this into a one-person show, and it sounded like exactly like the kind of show that I'd want to work on. So we started working on it then. I can't remember exactly when the first draft came, but there were, you know, we proceeded to work on it in different chunks of time in Vancouver, and I was in and out of town working on different projects. And I helped her shape the drafts over the course of that. And then it debuted this last July in Winnipeg at the Winnipeg Fringe. 
what do you, what about it do you think you thought were like I think this would really interest the audience members what what kind of sparked your interest and said I want to work on this with Megan this is a good idea be careful what you say TJ yeah. <laughs> in tw- in 2012 I did a one man show called Medicine which was about my experiences at an ayahuasca retreat and ayahuasca is a Peruvian shamanic plant medicine with strong psychotropic properties and I did this in a group setting under the guidance of Dr. Gabor Mate, who Vancouverites might know, or people in general might know, for his books on addiction and ADD and attachment parenting and autoimmune disease. And his basic thesis is that stress and trauma in early life can play out in a variety of ways throughout a person's adult life. And we often don't realize that that's what's happening, that that's what's at the core of kind of this hunger inside us that causes us to act out in terms of ADD or addiction or compulsive behavior of one kind or another. Doing that show about that experience, because the experience was very cathartic, but doing the show about it was actually more cathartic than the experience itself because I was reliving it and I was sharing it. And the effect that that had on me was, and I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, it was, it has been life-changing for me. And I've since done other shows about similar experiences in my life. And this has kind of become one of the things that I do. So I'm very interested when people take deep, meaningful personal experiences and want to create them into something for for the stage so that they can retell it, they can share it with others, and they can relive it. And this seemed to be exactly along those lines. Megan, I have heard and read that Not Enough is a dark comedy. What does dark comedy mean? That is an interesting question, actually, because uh, TJ and I also, uh, can I just elaborate quickly on TJ's previous yes, answer? Yes, please uh, do. I just wanted to say that the, the thing that drew me to TJ, when I had the idea of that I wanted to do the show and I had booked some fringe spots, even before actually I'd booked fringe spots, I had seen Medicine in 2012 when I did my first solo show. And at the time, that was my very first TJ Daw show. And I immediately saw TJ on stage and I was like, I want that. I want to do that. I want to take a thing that I've done and I want to share it with the world and make it theatrical and, and make it funny. And TJ is truly, a, I call him my creative doula, not even a creative midwife, because I feel like the midwife is the director part, but like the creative doula. And uh, it's cool if I say that right, TJ. <laughs> oh, yeah, you bet. <laughs> uh, my creative doula. And because uh, he just, he has this really, this incredible knack for just working with people, especially people who really want to go there and are open to going there. And TJ has this like really Yoda-like knack of finding and, and uh, when people approach him of being able to vet the people, I think of the shows that I've seen that TJ's worked with of the ones who truly want to like go as deep as they possibly can. And uh, TJ has this incredible way of every time that I would get distracted or something would get too painful or too dark. Mm. You know, there were so many times when I wanted to brush away or go somewhere else or exaggerate or uh, distract from. And TJ would be like, you know, you could do that. Like, you would never tell me not to, but it would be more of a, like, but that first thing that you said that you brushed over, that thing is the actual real thing that you're avoiding, and let's dive there. TJ has this incredible way of just guiding his um, students. So to answer your question, the dark comedy, I knew from the get-go that I wanted to write a comedy. I mean, when you talk about dealing with such a dark topic, how do you make anxiety funny? and still be truthful to it is the ultimate question. In the course of writing this, I feel like there have been these works of people who I had previous not even really paid attention to their work very much, and Maria Bamford in particular, who have dealt with very, very dark comment, uh, very, very dark topics of 
things that they have lived through in their lives and then learn to live and tell the tale after. And I, I liken it to um, the comedy that I want to create, the dark comedy that to me is like the true comedy for me. Kind of how cavemen would fight bears and then laugh afterwards about the story that they had to tell. It's like I have, for whatever reason, I'm biologically predisposed, predisposed to it or uh, had certain things in my upbringing that have given me this specific mental health issue that I have to, that I do deal with and have dealt with day to day. And so in working through it with my own therapy and this retreat that I've done, going through that in life, and then I like to call it my sewage treatment plant of like all of the work that I do with that, I create art out of it, and then laugh afterwards about how I fought the bear and then lived, and then tell other people how to fight the bear, or at least how I fought the bear, and maybe that will help other people. Mm -hmm. You've lived to tell the tale. Yeah. TJ, anything to add about that? Yeah, that's one of the ways that we survive in life, not for everybody, but for a lot of us, is to develop a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. So when someone's going through something very difficult, it can be the kind of the steam release valve to be able to make a joke about it in the middle. I think that's very true to how Megan experienced the actual retreat and the discovery in, of her own anxiety and the battles with it, as well as for a lot of us. And that was definitely the case when I did medicine, is that I talk about some dark and harsh things in, about my life in that show, but there's jokes as well, because during the experience and during my life in general, there were both. There was both the darkness and, and the humor, and yeah, quite often the humor is what gets you through the darkness. Now, I'm wondering a little bit about the serious topics that you guys do deal with in, in, in Not Enough. Was it quite hard to strike the balance between making a show funny and then making it not insensitive or offensive? Well, our first and to my mind, chief priority was to be true to the actual experience that Megan went through. And jokes weren't so much a matter of us like deciding, okay, we need a laugh here. Let's what's what's an anxiety joke we can come mm. up with, but more like what actually happened that is actually funny. What's an absurd thought that Megan might have had, or what's just an a certain element of the experience that was there at the retreat that really happened, or that really was part of Megan's inner experience. That's funny. You know, when I work with people, they often say, I've got this idea for this show, but I want to make it funny. And my, my response to that is quite often, I think it will be. I think it will be as funny as you are. I think you would have to be very deliberate about not making it funny if you wanted to, to not make it funny because people's humor just kind of shines through in their expression, whether they want it to or not. Yeah. The only thing I think that we really had to censor was because it's autobiographical just making the story true to my experience and not other people. So there were some things where there were in the first draft some details that didn't actually help the show. In fact, maybe even hindered it a little bit, but were very specific to the other people that, you know, I've changed the names and changed the positions because it doesn't matter. It's not a show about other people. It's a story about me and my experience. One thing I found in the run, too, and I don't know if this is the same with TJ in medicine, but I found that sometimes I'll get complete laughs in this one section, and one line will always get a really heavy laugh. And then every so often there will just be an audience that doesn't laugh at the same things, and they laugh at different parts of the thought process. And, of course, with any, any comedy, that's always going to be the temporary community that you've created of the pe all people watching a show will be dependent on what people's life experiences are. But with something so heavy like this, 
for people who suffer from anxiety or or know people who do, there's a very interesting um, just kind of dynamic that can come from an audience depending on where those people are in terms of their recovery or their acknowledgement of anxiety. So some people laugh at some of the really, really dark jokes, and those are my favorite kind of audiences because I feel like they're the ones who have lived through <laughs> the darker stuff, where some people won't laugh at some things that other people laugh at because they can't find it funny because they're in the throes of it. And sometimes they'll get walkouts in the show because this, the show itself, it, it's very true to life, and so some people can find it quite intense, and they're not prepared to deal with this environment that's making it very true to form and realistic. And while it is, there is a big payoff at the end, and it, there's like a, a breakthrough at the end. But but for some people, they're just not there yet. And anybody who needs to walk out, like I completely understand, because we're all on our own little merry-go-round at some beginning, middle, or end <laughs> on our journey. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the runs that you guys have had already with Not Enough. I mean, the reviews have been astoundingly positive. Um, what is the kind of different feedback that both you and, and TJ that you guys have heard about Not Enough? Anything that sticks out in your memory? Well, I can say we had one woman come to the show in Winnipeg. This was one of my very, very first shows. And of course, when you're doing a show, at least for me, when I'm doing a show as aggressively autobiographical as it is, the one thing about keeping it true to form to my experience is that it is true to my experience and so it's kind of this like the first few shows are like ang my anxiety that the show is about was really not wanting me to do the show for other people and we had this one interaction with this woman after who came up in tears who had had a uh, she was a performer herself herself she had taken about eight months off of being in public after having an anxiety attack at her friend's show in the audience and had since not been out to theater or performances as an audience member and had barely been performing on stage and she said that going to my show was her very first show coming back into public and she wasn't sure if she could do it and she said there were times when she was scared almost walked out because it got so true to her experience but in the end, she came up with tears in her eyes and said, because of your show, I feel that I can now go out and see other theater. Like, I can go back into the world of being an audience member and a performer. And even more excitingly for me, I th although that was pretty beautiful, mm -hmm. was her partner was with her, uh, who had been with her for the whole time. And he thanked me because he said, well, thanked us, he said that our the experience that we had had gave him insight into the mind of somebody having an anxiety attack. And so he was able to have this visceral compassion for her and what she had gone through and what she continues to go through on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, was like the highlight of any review, any reaction that we could have gotten. And to add to that, another performer from another company in Winnipeg saw the show. And to say that Megan uses the loop pedal to voice her anxiety kind of undersells what she actually does. That loop pedal is going for basically the entire show. Really? The opening moment of the show is laying down a bed track of just the words, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, which then proceeds to loop for almost the entire show. And as the anxiety continues to dialogue with her, different lines are added to that loop, which kind of come and go, but that bed track, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, is, is there the entire time. Sometimes it changes in volume, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it disappears altogether, just to signify the 
inner experience of somebody with anxiety. And it is relentless. It goes through the entire show, and the show runs for close to an hour. And some friends of mine who saw the show said that they were talking afterwards to each other saying it's, it kind of almost gets your back up at certain points because it's so intense and it's so relentless and you want it to stop. And then they stopped as they were commenting to each other about this and saying, yeah, I guess that's the point. Mm-hmm. I guess that's exactly <laughs> the point because that's what it's like to have anxiety. So for somebody who's never had anxiety, it's this window into that experience. For somebody who does have anxiety or who has had it, it's this way of solidifying it and voicing it and saying, this is what it looks like, world. And part of what's so difficult about anybody experiencing something like that is the belief that they're alone, that they're experiencing something nobody else, mm. nobody could ever understand. And then when somebody's on stage actually doing it, quite often we get that response from people who then say that afterwards, which is like, you captured what I go through. And thank you, because I didn't know other people go through this, or I didn't know other people go through it in the way that I do. And then there you are on stage, not only brave enough to just expose this to everybody, but actually putting it into words, actually crystallizing this thing that usually isn't represented. And anxiety is incredibly widespread and insanely underrepresented in terms of like, how often do you see that in a movie? or in a TV show, or read about it in a novel, or see it in a play, practically never. Really, that's that's really incredible. And kind of focusing this discussion to your guys' experience with the French Festival now, um, Megan, you said that it's it's been three years since you participated in the Fringe. How does it feel coming back? It feels great. Uh, to clarify, it's, my, it's been three years since I've done the Vancouver Fringe, so I've been doing the Fringe every year since 2012, but just in different cities. It feels a very much like a full circle experience because my very first fringe experience ever was in 2012 with a show, solo show, uh, my first show, Breaking Velocity. I had done that in the Toronto and the Vancouver Fringe 2012, which is when I met TJ. And then since then, I've worked on a lot of other shows with other people, either as a co-writer or co-producer, uh, uh, performer, I've toured a bunch with groups, but this is a full circle year because I haven't done a solo show since that time. So to be doing a solo show with fringe, fringe god TJ Da, <laughs> to be able to do the show that is so powerful, has been so powerful to me, but also just has been powerful to other people's experiences from what they've shared to me is just... It feels, uh, what, is there a word for it? I don't know. It, it feels amazing. Ugh, that, la- that word is far too lame for what the actual experience <laughs> feels like. <laughs> Where's my thesaurus? <laughs> I, think, I think neat is the word you're looking for. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah but as, as few syllables as possible. Yeah, it's spiffy. It's yeah. <laughs> DJ, for yourself, how does it feel coming back to the Fringe? It's actually been a number of years since I've participated in the Vancouver Fringe, other than in the Midnight Cabaret. Really? Because for one reason or another, the Fringe is harder to get into than it, than it used to be. So I've continued to do festivals outside of Vancouver, and I always attend shows at the Vancouver Fringe. Mm-hmm. But I think the last time, I, well, there was last year. I, so I guess it's not that year. <laughs> I did a Bring Your Own Venue spot last year where I did a different show every single time. But it's since 2010 that I did one show for an entire festival. Mm. Anyway, this year I'm coming back with a full house. So I'm doing my own show, Burn Job, which is an autobiographical monologue about growing up in Vancouver and about how different experiences I've had in altered states have sort of helped facilitate growing up 
in one way or another. I did acid for the first time when I was 17, which caused me to look at my teenage years in a whole new way and actually disown them. And that was right before I left home and went to university in Victoria. And then a year and a half ago, my girlfriend and I did holotropic breathwork, which is a breathing technique that brings you into an altered state comparable to being on LSD. But unlike my first LSD trip, which was done in a recreational setting, you know, just with friends, holotropic breathwork is done in a therapeutic setting. And that's where my girlfriend and I did it. And that caused me to see the pattern of kind of divorcing myself from my past, which had happened when I did acid that first time, which has happened a number of times since, and realized the damage that actually causes. Mm. So there's a huge catharsis with doing that show, and I'm very excited to do it. I did a run at the Winnipeg Fringe, and I did a run at the Orlando Fringe, and I just love the show to pieces. And it's such I a great show. Wait. I just have to say, it's a phenomenal show. I'm going to be doing that at the Rio. So the Rio Theater is a wonderful movie theater. It's also really big, and it's never been used as a fringe venue before. It's a bring-your-own venue, and me and a bunch of other solo performers are renting it and using it. So we sure hope people come, because even a good-sized crowd, like 100 people, is a decent crowd at the fringe, but even that's going to look like a small house at the Rio. And it's interesting to think about the, the work that I do. Like, it really does fit pretty cleanly into two even camps. You know, there's a kind of show like Burn Job or like Not Enough that's about deep, dark, personal exploration of issues, so another show that I'm involved with like that is called Sober But Never Clean, which is by a stand-up comedian, Richard Lett, who was a very, very strong uh, alcoholic for a lot of years, for decades, as well as a headlining touring comedian across Canada, mm-hmm. and very emotionally fraught and abusive and a drug addict and all kinds of things, and then stopped. He went through recovery completely and has been sober ever since, and he writes about that. And he tells that story of, being addicted, what got him there, what early experiences brought him there, what recovery was like, what life has been since, through performance poetry, he's a slam poet now, through stamp comedy, through stories, and through music. I'm working with another guy, Mark Hughes, on a show called Tragedy Plus Time Served Equals Comedy. He grew up in Vancouver, and he had some very difficult experiences growing up, and he got into addiction and crime. Spent a number of years in prison, and then got clean and got out of that, and is now a functioning guy and has a job, and is a working stand-up comedian, so he tells his story about that. And then there's the other kind of show that I work on, which is much more just fun and entertainment. So one of those shows is called One Man Dark Knight, a Batman parody, in which Charlie Ross, who's been touring the world doing one-man Star Wars and one-man Lord of the Rings, is doing his one-man condensation of the Christopher Nolan, Christian Bale Batman movies. And then there's One Woman Sex in the City, which is playing after The Fringe as part of Pick Plus, which is a one-woman condensation of the six seasons of Sex and the City. So neither of those shows is personal in that same way. Neither of them involves reaching down into one's guts and saying, this is my dark truth. It's really just jokes and, you know, a loving parody of this franchise that's just been out there and that I love and that the other performers love. But also, I think, really connects us and helps people celebrate the love that they have for these things and just laugh together. It's going to be a busy fringe. No kidding. Just a couple. The way I roll. (laughs) I don't think you're doing enough, TJ. Uh TJ, I I mean, even after speaking with uh, Megan, I have no doubt even if I were to speak with all the other productions you're part of, they would say very similar things of high praise of your ability to, to mentor and direct and dramaturge. Do you have any any responses to that? Yeah, working with other people in this way kind of snuck up on me. You know, growing up, I, I had an ambition to be an actor, but directing just kind of fell into my lap. Hmm. 
Mm. Like I never, I never studied directing. I certainly never studied script writing or dramaturgy. It just kind of happened as a matter of being a set of outside eyes, giving somebody feedback, being a sounding board for what they want to come across. And it's something, you know, I'm 40, I just turned 42, like on Monday. It's something that I'm just starting to realize, like basically when I hit 40, I started to own this and accept this. I'm the child of two educators. My parents met getting their master's degrees in religious education. Mm. Growing up, my mom moved from teaching to administration. She worked at the Catholic school board downtown. My dad moved from teaching to being a high school principal, and he was my high school principal. And for a lot of years, I wanted nothing to do with teaching. I had a really negative view of what teaching was, especially in the arts, because there's a number of people who teach in the arts who would rather be practicing their art, mm -hmm. but are teaching it because it's a consistent paycheck. So I kind of denigrated education altogether as a profession because of that. And now I'm coming to see maybe I do have teacher DNA in me, and maybe that's not a bad thing. In fact, I'm working with people helping them bring this thing inside them out, isn't that what teaching is? And now I actually teach a course on how to create a one-person show at Langara, and it's going to happen again this uh, coming November. And it's part of continuing education, so anybody can take it. It's not like just for Langara students. It's for anybody who has this desire, you know, to take the thing that's inside them and bring it out and do it under the watchful eye of somebody who's done this a lot. So teaching kind of snuck up on me, and I was delighted to discover that I really enjoy it. And I lead workshops now, too, and I'm also going to be leading a writing retreat in northern B.C. for a week in October. Shut up and write, where people just kind of <laughs> sit down in a room and stop talking about the thing they want to write, but actually sit down and write it. And then have an opportunity to read what they've written, you know, to each other or just to me, if they want to, if they're ready, at the end of each day. And I'm really looking forward to it. So... If, if the me from 10 years ago were to hear me talking now, that me would be horrified, saying, who's that guy? God, I never want to turn into him. But I was a different person then, and it's continuing to happen. So I kind of welcome it. I'm really enjoying it, and I'm curious to see where this is going to go. And I don't see teaching or mentoring as selling out now. I see it as a natural extension of what I've been interested in this whole time. Mm -hmm. Teaching may have snuck up on you, TJ, but you very, very clearly have an incredible talent at it. My final question is going to be, obviously, could you please relay the uh, debut date, location, time, how people get, get, get tickets for Not Enough. But before I do that, Megan, is there anything else you want to say about Not Enough that you hope will entice listeners to come watch the production? Yeah. There's a, there's a fart joke. <laughs> There legitimately is. And I think being able to talk about deep, dark, personal things and throwing in fart shows, I think those things can peacefully coexist. 100%. You know, I would say don't be scared of the fact that it's like this deep, dark, heavy thing. Because it's, it's kind of not, because it has a lightness to it. And, I mean, it is, in the end, a comedy. And it is, in the end, about chasing the bear and then realizing that the bear was actually uh, like a stone drawing of a bear that somebody drew um, years ago and you just was, was miraged. All the metaphors. All the <laughs> Why choose one when you can pick 12? <laughs> 
Yeah, TJ nailed it. Yeah, there's a fart joke. Come for the fart joke. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, now time for the uh, details, because I have no doubt that listeners who um, are listening are going to want to find out more. So, when does Not Enough debut at the Vancouver Fringe Festival? Sure thing. So, it uh, I actually have 12 performances, because it's in a tiny venue. So, it's in Arts Umbrella. Uh, it debuts on the actual first day of the Fringe, which is Thursday, September 8th, and it runs all the way until September 18th on pretty much every day except for, uh, I believe it's Monday and Friday. And where is Arts Umbrella? Yeah. Arts Umbrella is on Granville Island. It is at uh, 1286 Cartwright Street. So it is a BYOV, but it is on the island, so it's it will be very easy to find. It's just when you're walking up on the right-hand side, a little bit past the uh, carousel theater. Yes, go to VancouverFringe.com, and then you'll also buy tickets for all 12 of TJ's other shows because they will be equally as fantastic. If not for the fart jokes, uh, go for the other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Megan and TJ, for uh, joining me today this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Forward to seeing you there. Yeah. There, I'm going to call you on it. (laughs) <laughs> and he does. This okay. is he. He may be a sensei, but he's a sensei who knows how to. He's he's never angry, but always disappointed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that might actually be worse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Fringy Life episode two, part two, dark comedy. Special thanks to our guests, Megan Phillips and TJ Daw. Music for this episode is sourced from royalty-free music at bensound.com. I'm your host, Christine Kim. Tune in next time for another episode of This Fringy Life. To understand more about fashion, we asked CITR student executive and fashion expert Jonathan Q what fashion means to him. Like, it's just aesthetically something that's so ostentatious typically typically i mean because of course i mean it's also you know i mean when when you say fashion i think people are talking explicitly about uh consumerism as opposed to someone who buys like uh like you know If you really want to know more about fashion, come on down to CITR in the Student Union Building of UBC and pick up some of our merchandise à la mode. Nous avons t-shirts, sweatshirts, socks, and coffee mugs. But it's also very aesthetically gripping. To keep you styling in support of the station you love. Isn't that right, Jonathan? Well, actually, is it? Because, I mean, you know, I was going to say because of the cultural vacuum that we exist within. But then, you know, uh, really, fashion today is kind of derived from the European idea of couture. And that's been around for centuries. Are you aware? Radio. Alternate Thursdays, 6 to 7 p.m. at CITR 101.9 FM. Profiling music and musicians take the root of positive action over apathy. Welcome back to the Arts Report official comeback show of the fall right here at CITR 101.9 FM. I'm your host for today, Christine Kim. It is September the 7th, 2016, just one day before the Fringe Festival kicks off. This year, the Fringe Fest will run from September 8th to 18th. On today's Arts Report show, we are catching you up on all things Fringe, meaning we're airing some special This Fringy Life podcasts. For those of you who are listening in on the show from the very beginning, 
What did you think of the episode? Did you like it? If you did, you can listen to all of the episodes on our Mixcloud account. Just type in www.mixcloud.com slash artsreport underscore CITR. If you're just tuning in, do not worry because we've got one more This Fringy Life podcast to air, this time featuring country singers. Welcome to This Fringy Life on CITR 101.9 FM. This is a special broadcast from The Arts Report. Each episode, we bring you stories from the fringe in advance of Fringe Festival. The Vancouver Fringe Festival runs this September from the 8th to the 18th. For more information about the Unjuried Fringe Fest, check out VancouverFringe.com. And for more information about the Arts Report, visit citr.ca. Hello, and welcome to This Fringy Life. I'm Christine Kim, and today's episode is about all things music. I sit down with the famous Haydell Sisters. The charismatic country singer duo is back for a wild comeback tour at the Fringe Fest this year. No matter if you love or hate country music, this duo's witty wordplay and satirical spin on the country music genre will sure to entertain. Now, while the stage name of the Haydell Sisters is actually Maddie and Maybelle, I talked to the personalities behind the mask, Donna Kay and Sadie Bowman. Coming from Portland, USA, it is their first time at the Vancouver Fringe Festival. They share a bit about what's always hard attending a festival like the Fringe for the very first time, and also what they found totally unique about the Vancouver Fringe. As we chatted, I asked them a question that made the two of them, huh, and hmm, literally. And in turn, they told me something totally fascinating about country singer Loretta Lynn that made me respect country singers so much more. So cue the cool vibes and turn the dial up. My name is Sadie Bowman. And I play Maybelle Haydell, who is the younger famous Haydell sister, who plays guitar and is generally squirrely. And my name is Donna K. Yarborough. I play Maddie Haydell, the other Haydell sister. I play bass guitar, and I grouse a lot. <laughs> Sounds good. So tell me about the famous Haydell sister. Sure. Uh, well, we were, the famous Haydell sisters were a superstar country music sister act in the early 90s. The, the legend, the lore has it that they were chart toppers, country music award winners, tabloid superstars, um, just really had this meteoric rise to fame when they were very, very young. Then they unfortunately had a fallout about 1993 and went over 20 years without speaking to each other. And this show, the famous Haydell Sisters Comeback Tour, which we're doing at Vancouver Fringe, is the first time that these two personalities have been together on stage since 1993. It is a reunion concert, so to speak, with a little bit of insight into our personal dramas. And I've read in the press release that this comeback tour is both satirical and comedic. Tell me about why this performance is satirical. The way that we treat the material, the songs themselves, they are comedic. They're funny songs on their own. But we also have a great, I don't know if respect is the word for it, but we, <laughs> but we honor the country music 
seen, not only in reference, but also in the tone that is trying to be achieved. So it's not just jokey songs. It goes a little bit of a layer deeper mm. uh, because of our respective places we grew up. We're kind of forced to experience country music <laughs> and that um, and uh it led to a little bit of rediscovery of some appreciation of what was big in the 90s. But a lot of it is just commentary on that kind of social lifestyle. And it's done It's done lovingly, I would say. We have a very loving poke at that bear. So were you two then originally, before this entire even act, pretty big country music fans? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I speaking for myself, I have always definitely had a, a love and respect for sort of the what I would call classic country music. Um, you know, Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, um, Johnny Cash, you know, that era of American music. But definitely always kind of had a certain degree of contempt for the sort of the, the popification of country music that mm -hmm. has happened over the past couple of decades. And I would not say that I enjoyed it growing up with it, but like Donna was saying, um, we've sort of rediscovered the sort of nostalgia um, for that genre. And so we use it as a vehicle to write funny songs and just sort of have a good time with it. And I know that both of you are comedians. I also found it really interesting that uh, I've been hearing great things about just both of your musical ability and, and talent to sing. Um, was that difficult for you guys? In terms, I mean, I think like cracking a joke and then being able to like hit a pretty solid note is are two totally different talents, no? <laughs> I think it it doesn't get combined as much as possible. I or as it could be. Mm. I think a lot of music scene is garnered to be very serious mm -hmm. about one's craft, and everybody takes oneself so seriously. And on the flip side, a lot of people that uh, are comedic, that comedy comes out of a I hate to use the word deficiency somewhere else. <laughs> But it's it's a it's a compensating tool mm -hmm. so that people are very forgiving if you're comedic. And I think both of us have, you know, we've both grown up with music in some form or another. And it's, it's a lovely world to live in where you can actually take your craft seriously, but, you know, have a full mockery of everything that's going on. And it just leads to a very delightful experience. I like to use the word delight because that's not that encompasses so many emotions to leave an audience delighted means they've gone on a journey through a full spectrum of experience now i'm actually thinking about the kind of audience members you guys are targeting with just your guys performance i mean i was looking at some of the pictures for the, prom the promotion of the famous haydell sisters comeback tour and some of the pictures are pretty racy are you afraid that it's not going to appeal to a very wide audience you know what we've actually <laughs> won into i think the racy aspect of our show is not as much of a concern as the country music aspect <laughs> of our show. And that's why we really have to encourage people that this is, even though we, we have a love for what we do, 
it's whether you like country music, you, you'll like it. If you hate country music, you'll love it because it's, it's treated with comedy. And that's been our biggest obstacle is getting people to go past the fact and go, oh, I don't like country music and not take a moment to see everything that's therein. Yeah, people who don't like country music hold that as a very strong part of their identity. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a big, there's sort of a stigma against country music. Like, it's associated with, you know, all kinds of backward, you know, backward connotations or lowbrow connotations. And I think a lot of theater goers don't really uh, want to associate themselves with that. And so, like Donna's saying, that, that is a bigger obstacle than fearing that we're going to offend people. Like, I don't think, I mean, definitely a lot of our content is definitely adult. Um, is definitely a little bit pushy, but I don't think that it's anything that I'm afraid to, I don't think it's going to stir up too much controversy, except maybe getting people to think about things a little more. And let's talk a little bit about the kind of feedback, reviews that you guys have been getting, because you guys won Best of Venue at Saskatoon Fringe. Congratulations on that. Well, I will tell you this. The smaller towns and the people that have been inadvertently exposed to more, I'll say, rural lifestyles, such as we have people that have country music in their lives, whether they want it or not, mm-hmm. are the folks that have really enjoyed the show. Okay. Uh, it's been a little more, like we said, it's been a little more difficult in larger cities. So I think what we do see consistently is even people that come in with a figurative, arms-crossed, I-don't-want-to-enjoy-this-show attitude are usually won over at least to a degree by just the simple fact that the songs are really charming and mm-hmm. it's a really feel-good show. Mm-hmm. It, it feels good. It, you laugh. There's things to think about. The songs are pretty. So there is a little something for everyone in it. So how are you two feeling for your upcoming performance in Vancouver, which is, I would say, a pretty big city? (laughs) Well, we're trying to get as many podcast interviews as we can, so uh, (laughs) we're doing pretty well on that front. I am excited. Um, I have not done, neither of us have ever done the Vancouver Fringe before, so we're kind of coming in as newbies, and that's always a challenge, Mm -hmm. um, doing a festival, especially in a big city, for the first time. Um, because you just don't have any cred to to precede you. Um, you're starting at the bottom. So um, that's a bit daunting. Um, but I am excited. I do feel like once, you know, once a few people take a chance on our show and if this is the type of festival where people talk to each other, which I very much hope it is, <laughs> you know, word of mouth usually is our best is our best ally in any new situation. Have you guys been able to get a chance to look at the Vancouver Fringe lineup? Anything you guys are particularly excited to see or any aspects of the of the Vancouver Fringe Festival you're excited to try out? Yeah, I've definitely, I mean, in looking at the lineup, this is our second year touring, so we have a lot of friends now. <laughs> um, so a lot of the touring people that we've gotten to know on the circuit who are going to be there that I'm always excited to see your Jem Rolls and your Martin Dockery and your John Bennett, all of those those sort of big fringe names and other people that we know. Something about Vancouver Fringe uh, on the website that I think is really cool that I have not seen on any other festival website 
is they give you the option to kind of um, make a selection of a show based on what mood you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little, this little drop-down menu, where I think it's just called Pick a Genre or something, and it's got stuff like, you know, beyond just like comedy, drama, musical, or whatever, it's like silly or naughty or in your face or poetic or dark or whatever sort of nuanced experience you're in the mood for that night I think is a really awesome tool for audiences to because you know if you're at fringe hopefully you're going to take a chance on something that you don't know much about but sometimes you kind of have a feeling of what you want to experience but it's a more subtle sort of movie thing and I think that's a really cool way to guide people into the different the different shows and different experiences I'm glad you mentioned that. My next question then is what mood do you think that audience members should be in to come see your show? (laughs) They have to be in the mood already. Uh, (laughs) It's somebody that's looking for something, you know, something that's going to make them laugh is definitely good. And clearly the defining aspects of this is comedy and music. Those are the big pillars of definition. But there's other subtlety there within. I, I think it's a delightful show to put you in a good mood. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I, you know, we sort of classify it as comedy. I describe it as being silly or goofy. Um, but also, I think the strength of the show is our wordplay. Donna and I are both um, sort of aficionados of the English language, our word nerds, as I like to say. We talk real good. And Yeah. And so um, that's another thing is just if you're in the mood for something that you have to really listen to, it's going to, you're going to be very pickled by some of our rhymes and some of our lyrics and, and that content of our show as well. We definitely take an angle towards our songs hmm. of trying to write on subjects that you don't typically hear written about in country music. So that's okay. part of the joy of that as well, along with, you know, social commentary. And, you know, social commentary is best served with a hefty dose of sugar on it. Can we get a little taster of the topics? Well, we've got, I mean, we've got twists on your classic country scenarios, like the classic ubiquitous cheating man song. Mm. Um, There's a little song called, that we call Hair Today, Gone Tomorrow. And it's about a woman who finds out that her husband is cheating on her because she finds certain very specific identifiable hairs a song is really fun to write called The Good Old Days, which is just a nostalgia blast about the early 90s. Mm. Um, so that's another thing, not to like say that there is a generational aspect to our show, but we definitely invoke a lot of references and a lot of memories from that specific period of history. And I mean, seeing as this is your second run through, I have no doubt that what you guys have created from the very beginning has been refined and it's been changed to some degree to what it is now and what you're going to be bringing to the Vancouver Fringe. And I'm wondering, has there been any specific individuals that you'd just like to do a shout out for helping you guys along in creating the famous Haydell sisters? Oh, well, hmm. Huh. That's hard to say. Well, I'll tell you what, we were both really inspired and sincerely and got a little geeky about Garth Brooks, uh, which, of course, Garth Brooks had nothing to do directly with our show. And uh, But God help us, we love him. 
<laughs> we love him. He's such a good performer. And that's one of those things that uh, as we were creating the show and going back and doing our research to try to do, uh, you know, callbacks to the time period, we realized that there are performers like this, just these incredible performers that are magnetic and have slightly different things to say and were just fantastic. I love you, Garth Brooks, <laughs> wherever you are. <laughs> can, you, can each of you say maybe your favorite uh, country music song today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I have one. Okay, you go, I do have one. you go my, first. Uh, mine is The Pill by Loretta Lynn. Oh. Um, Loretta Lynn is a freaking hero. And this is something that I, I've always enjoyed her music. I've always liked her, but... Since developing this character and just researching the history of country music, I found out this woman, she had nine songs that were banned from the radio in the 1970s because of their controversial subject matter. And she put out this song that was on one of her albums in the 70s called The Pill, um, which is literally about (laughs) the oral contraceptive pill. And a lot of the people who were buying her records were women in the American South who did not have access to information, did not have access to education. They literally did not know that this was an invention that was available to them until they heard this song. And so doctors, you know, all over the American South were getting these patients coming in saying, what is this thing Loretta Lynn is talking about in this song? I want that. Can I have that? And I just think that is an amazing example. And, of course, that song is banned from the radio. Um, you could only hear it if you had actually bought her record. But I just think that's an amazing and inspiring uh, illustration of just the power just of music empowering people. And I just think Loretta Lynn is an amazing person for doing that. My favorite song is nowhere near that highfalutin. <laughs> I just have a really, really, I have a soft spot if we're going to go way back for Johnny Horton, the music of Johnny Horton. Yeah. Some of which is really, really get down fun and some of which is a little bit creepy. But, of course, it was the 1950s. But the song that will always just put me in a puddle is um, Glenn Campbell's version of Wichita Lineman. Because it's just, it's such a beautiful tune. And Glenn Campbell was just a master musician. You know, he started as a studio session guitarist. And then that voice on top of it. And then the song itself is very down to earth but has a fragility to it. A friend of mine and I were listening to the song to do a parody of it, and we both just broke down in tears listening to it for the first time. It's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song. That is very beautiful, and those are two very thoughtful responses. Thank you two so much for taking the time to have this interview with me. Can one of you end off this interview by reminding our listeners for when your debut performance at the Vancouver Fringe Festival will be? Our first performance is Thursday, September 8th at 8.35. It is at Performance Works. And the cool thing about our opening performance, all you fringe goers out there, is that our opening night show is actually right before the Fringe for All, which is the big event where all of the performers get to do little snippets of their shows. So as an audience, you can kind of get a sampling of what's out there. Um, so that event is in that exact same venue at 10 p.m. So we are right before that. If you want to um, just get a preview of the preview, Um, You can just come to our first performance and then stick around for the preview event. And you can get tickets on, I believe it's just VancouverFringe.ca. 
Thank you for listening to This Fringy Life, Episode 7, Music. Special thanks to our guests, Donna Kay and Sadie Bowman. Music for this episode is sourced from royalty-free music at bensound.com. I'm your host, Christine Kim. Tune in next time for another episode of This Fringy Life. Thanks for tuning in to the Arts Report. My name is Christine Kim, and I want to hear from all of you Arts Report listeners out there on what you're excited about most for the Fringe this year. Reach out to us by finding us on Twitter and Facebook. I can't wait already until next week when the Arts Report will air again Wednesday from 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I hope you can join us, but until then, for more information on the Fringe, go to VancouverFringe.com. And for more information about the Arts Report, go to CIC. Regulations.